Hello and welcome to the Sensing the Wild podcast. My name is Lee Nicholson and I am your presenter. I work for a community interest company called Going for Independence, which is based in the Redcar and Cleveland area in the beautiful northeast of England. We work with people with sight loss and other disabilities and our founder member and MD is Pam Bennett. During this month's podcast, we are looking back to July 2019 until March 2020 to the seasonal workshops we had. During that time, we had several workshops with the Tees Valley Wildlife Trust and can you remember Steve Ashton and Kate Bartram who were our hosts? You will remember the fun we had at our workshops which were held in various locations around the North East and we were glad to have the assistance of our friends there too. Coming up in the podcast is an interview with Steve. He talks about a variety of topics with subjects about what to feed our wild birds and visit animals. There's a very interesting piece about moths and Steve describes the process of capture and listen to him describing and documenting the different species. Uh, we'll, we'll end the podcast with a capture of events at the workshops. I must tell you, the interview with Steve is not face-to-face due to the awful pandemic restrictions we've all been under. But for the first time, I talked to Steve over a Wi-Fi connection. Therefore, expect some slight sound quality issues, but this is all beyond our control. Today I'm joined by Steve Ashton who is going to share with us some of the content of the workshops so we can remember and reminisce about the fabulous times we had together. Anyway Steve it's great to hear from you and just can you tell us a little bit about your job? So obviously at the moment with the way things are I'm working from home but uh, yeah. Normally, I would be in the office or out and about working with schools because I'm yeah. the uh, Tees Valley Wildlife Trust People and Wildlife Manager. People quite often ask me which <laughs> are most difficult to manage, people or wildlife, <laughs> which uh, is an interesting question. Really, what, what my job is all about is trying to get people to uh, connect to uh, nature, connect to wildlife, because everybody benefits from spending some time with nature, being outdoors, and even a short walk makes you feel better. So that, that's my role, really. I, I work with schools. I do guided walks. I manage other people who are delivering similar mm. projects. Now we're going to talk about winter because, as I say, we're in the throes of it. On the news, it's saying it's one of the coldest winters that we've ever had. I don't know what your feelings about that is, but, you know, there's lots and lots in the news about climate change as well. And, and why should we be concerned, Steve? Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think last night in Scotland, it was minus 17. I think here, here it's probably going to be round about minus five, minus seven. So, yes, it is. It is pretty cold. So it's interesting when you mention climate change, because uh, especially when we you quite yes. often say climate change and global warming in the same <laughs> sentence. And people say, yes, but it's snowing. It's cold. 
So that really confuses people. And I think one of the things is people get mixed up between mm-hmm. weather, which is what's happening now and what's going to happen tomorrow, which is the long-term changes, the trends that are happening. And basically, this is happening because of humans. We're burning fossil fuels, we're cutting down trees. And when we do this, we produce the gas called carbon dioxide, which is the main greenhouse gas. And basically, what's happening is it's going to be hotter and wetter and more extreme. And I know that there's something called eco-anxiety at the minute people are very concerned about it is there anything that we could do as individuals to help the climate right yeah it's an interesting one that i suppose that the biggest contribution that we might have is is the the co2 that we produce when we're buying goods when we're traveling and those sorts of things so i think the idea is really that you need to cut something which is your carbon footprint in fact we're just doing a carbon footprint for the trust at the moment and over the past the year before covid we were looking at how much co2 we produce through our electricity use, our oil use, and our transport. And the biggest thing came out, which is interesting, is the the travel. The travel with our work and also travel to work. So I think travel is probably the biggest thing that people can think about. And of course, with COVID, a lot more people are working from home and things have become a bit more flexible. So I think this could be a positive thing that comes out of COVID, that people might spend a bit more time working at home. Because the weather is colder now, people do sit in their cars with the engines running. And that, I feel, contributes to climate change. And I just feel if everybody stopped doing that and switched their engines off, then as a a multiple of people doing it, it might have some small difference. Do you think that would be true? Yes, I agree. And it's, it's that idea of collective that you mentioned, that it's important that we all do our little bit. A lot, lots of people do ask whether whether we should feel, feed the birds yes. in, uh, in winter because they're not sure whether they want to interfere. But yes. uh, research shows that uh, birds are one of the species that really do benefit from supplementary feeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only birds benefit, I think people benefit as well from actually watching the birds. So that's two reasons to do it, really. So uh, you can feed lots of different things so you and you can buy them from various places quite often you can buy seed mixes so they're a mixture of different seeds and if you're going to do one one particular type of food perhaps it's best putting something like that out so you get a greater variety of birds right uh, but if you go to somewhere specialist you can buy t- uh, straight seeds so they're just particular types of seeds so for example i provide red millet in my garden because a particular type of bird tree sparrows love it so they they come from the other things you might like to try is things like sunflower hearts so they're the middles of the sunflower seeds so they've had the the husks removed they're a bit more expensive than sunflower seeds but they're more accessible for the birds the goldfinches are loving sunflower hearts so uh, different seeds attract different birds you can have them in feeders which is probably really good then the spillage is less and it's less likely to, to attract other things. And if you have them in a feeder, quite often the birds will make a bit of a mess, but other birds like blackbirds and pigeons will come along and feed on the bits at the bottom. And the final thing that's probably worth putting out, if you want, is fat balls. So these are the uh, balls made out of fat with seed in them and things like that. So other birds particularly like things like starlings will come down for that. Yes, I remember, Steve, we did make some fat balls at one of the workshops, didn't we, with you? Yes, we did. Yes, yes. So uh, several ways of doing that. You can uh, you can use lard 
and just melt it down a little bit. Right. Or you can use suet and do it with your fingers. We use suet and did it with our fingers. Right. So basically, you just mould the suet round something. We moulded it round pine cones. Then we added some seeds. Then you can add other bits as well, like raisins. When we're doing it with the kids, we actually buy the dried mealworms and they push those in as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And uh, lots of birds like those, like blue tits and great tits. And even uh, greater spotted woodpeckers will come down to fat balls. Thinking as well about one of the owls that we had. It, I know it was a taxidermy model of an owl. It was actually a real yes. owl. And I remember it had an extended wingspan, didn't it, of about half a metre across. And some of our guests were feeling across the wingspan and they didn't realise how how big these birds' wingspans were. If we were wanting to attract owls into the garden, is there any particular foods that we could put out for them? No, not with owls. I would generally not try and attract those into the garden because for, for they, they eat meat. So if you put meat out, it starts to attract other species like rats and things like that. Oh, so you, you need to put food out for owls. The only thing you could do is, depending on, on how big your garden is, if you've got some large trees, you could try tawny owl boxes, bird boxes made specially for tawny owls. So they will go on a big tree if you've got it in the garden. Mm -hmm. Or if, you, if you've got a farm, the other option is to put a barn owl box up. But uh, food for owls is probably a no-no. Right. Okay, I see. And what about foxes then? What If we wanted to attract a fox to the garden, we talked about this in the workshop, I remember. And I remember this sound of this fox screaming. And it was really interesting because one of the guests that we had around the table, she said that, it sounded like somebody being in distress. Yes, it does. The and, and they'll be doing it at this time of year. The fox is actually making okay. that call. Right. Yes. Uh, would we? It's an interesting. So would we attract them with food? Yes, you would food. You could put uh, cat food out quite often, or chicken, and things like that. Oh. They would they would attract them in. But quite often, people with foxes sometimes consider that they they can become a, a little too tame. And then people start to worry about their pets and things like that. But there are lots of people who do put uh, things out foxes. Okay. And you can buy hedgehog food as well to attract hedgehogs. That's a good idea, Steve. Yes. Attract the hedgehogs. Yes. Yeah, a little bull. And uh, particularly, you don't you don't feed them milk. So quite often people, when they put a fence up, they might they try and make it as, as tight as possible so things can't get through. And that means that any hedgehogs end up, if they come into one garden, they can't get to the next garden, they can't get to the next garden. So we've been working with, I think it's called Hedgehog Street, the organisation, encouraging people to just make sure there's somewhere in the garden, the small, it doesn't need to be very big. And obviously hedgehogs are really good for the garden because they uh -huh. eat the slugs and snails that feed on my lettuces. They are disappearing in large numbers. One mm -hmm. of the reasons is because people are using slug pellets. Is there any other insecticide that we shouldn't be using? Well, we, right. we try and encourage everybody to, to go organic, really, not pesticides or herbicides. Right. I, I don't use any in my garden at all. Some of the weeds that come up, I will pull up and remove, but I'd rather do that than a chemical. And weeds are just plants in the wrong place, and quite often they provide food and seeds for other species. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be untidy. Some wildlife gardens are, are, are quite tidy in that they've mm -hmm. chosen particular plants 
that are good for pollinators. So plants that are good for pollinators, quite often you can get a little logo on them that the Royal Horticultural Society have done some uh, scientific tests on these particular yeah. plants, which means they're better than others. Thanks for, for that, Steve. That's really good advice. Great. Thank you so much, Steve, for keeping us right on what we feed our garden visitors. In this next sequence, I've put together some sound clips from our workshops. See if you can guess which animal is in our garden. I'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. Now, as promised, we have that special feature about moths. So the moth trap was put on last night on the timer at about half past ten, just as it was going dark, till around four o'clock this morning. And the idea behind it is that we have a special light, it is called a mercury vapour discharge bulb so it gives a particular type of light that moths are attracted to. The moth trap itself is called a Skinner trap designed by somebody called Skinner. You can make these yourself but this is this is a bought one so should it rain they can drain it can drain away so that none of the moths will be injured it's then got like a, a funnel apparatus and with the bulb in the middle and basically when the light comes on the moths get attracted to it they get disorientated and they start to fly round they might need go near the bulb they'll hit the white plastic funnel and then they drop inside the bucket on top of the lamp we've got a, a bit of a bit of plastic which is a rain shield so these are well used traps they're the best way of attracting moths. There's lots of other ways as well where you can just put a white sheet up with a lamp behind it or you can use uh, a syrupy substance on trees that will attract them in but this is normally the, the best way of doing it. So I came down this morning I've got my bits of equipment out so I've got my camera to take a few pictures if I can. I've got lots of plastic containers with magnifying lenses on the top of them so I can see what I've got. I've got a brush to collect them. I've got my field guide to moths of Great Britain and Ireland which has got in it all 896 species of macro moths that you find in the UK. So these are the larger moths. And I don't know, uh, it's, it's quite difficult to identify moths because some of them look very similar. 
As soon as I've arrived, I can see one on the outside already, a rather small one. There also looks like there might be a mosquito just there as well, so I'll have to avoid that. Sometimes we have moths on the outside of the trap, so I'm just checking the outside of the trap to see if I can see anything. There's only the one which I'll need to collect before I can dismantle the rest of the trap. So I've got into the, the black bucket, if you like, and at the bottom we've got lots of egg cartons, which we put at the bottom for the moths to get comfortable under, away from the light, and spend the evening waiting for me to come down. I've had a quick look inside, and we've got at least one moth, which looks like it might be something called a heart and darts. Brown moth, about six centimeters, with a black dot, and uh, which looks a bit like a heart, and then a black arrow that looks a bit like a dart, which is quite a nice moth. And there was a very small, white carpet type moth which I'm just going to go and get so that's in my pot so that's two moths it was a bit chilly last night so perhaps that's why we're not finding a great deal but I've still got one two three four more bits of egg carton just get another pot ready see what's under this one. Oh, yeah another one. Oh, it's different to the this is an, a bit bigger than the other one and the heart and dart very well camouflaged but you can actually see it's got it's, it's got like a pointy snout interesting it's good well, this one's landing on my table so I'm gonna have to use a piece of paper just to slide it in so the the other one that I've caught now is still started to become a bit more active as it's come out into the light and it's warmed up a little bit so I have to see if I make sure I can get this one yep that's in the pot so that should be all right where's my lid for that one there it is oh excellent that's a big one that so this is about seven or eight centimeters again really well camouflaged looks like it spends its time on the bark of trees and something else I've not caught but it is quite pretty moth even though it is camouflaged so bring it over to the table see if I can get it in that's caught today I still Another one to look, another pot ready. Sometimes I run out of pots and I have to go and raid the kitchen to grab some uh, containers. Oh, another heart and dart. But there's a lot, although I said it's a heart and dart. Oh, excellent, I've just spotted another one that I haven't seen then. This is a really big one. Uh, a reasonable haul, there were 13 moths of 10 species, and that included a silver carpet, a heart and dart, as I mentioned earlier, but I also managed to get a heart and clubs. The largest moth I found was a large yellow underwing, which is quite a common one in gardens at the moment, and the, the prettiest, I suppose, was a clouded buff, which is a, an orange moth. And as you can tell by just some of those things I've just been mentioning there, one of the things about moths, which is really great, is the names. Some excellent names. A couple just to leave you with and to think about is one is called the uncertain that's rather bizarre and a very nice name is the merville du jour so until i get my moth trap out again hope you've enjoyed my little talk about it and i hope to see you soon when we'll be out and again on our nature reserves can you remember at the workshops we tasted a range of different british apples they were so delicious so here goes so many foreign imported apples and we forget about our native apples. Could you tell us a little bit about the apples? Yes, I mean, it's like you say, if you go to a supermarket, quite often there's only one or two different types of apples and they, like you say, are imported. Sometimes you can get English apples like Cox's, which are one of my favourites, but the, the apples that you get in the supermarket are nothing compared to the ones that you can get at, at other places. And interestingly, I think it was a couple of years ago I went to Norfolk and stopped at an orchard and they had, I think it was probably 24 different types of apple that you could 
twice. It gave me the idea to do it with your group, actually. So what I did, I uh, why were the I think I bought 12 different types of apples and then we had an apple tasting session at one of our staff meetings. And I thought that's quite a nice idea. And the, the, the different textures, different flavours, some are sweet, some are sour. And it's just a, a different way of doing it. I remember uplifting the mood in our lovely workshop because you brought some slow gin along and also some rosehip syrup, which was quite good fun. But slow gin so easy to make, isn't it? It is very much so, yes. And I think down in, in, in the kitchen somewhere, I've still got some slow gin left probably a, a year or two years ago that we just like to let it mature a bit longer to see what it's like. You quite often find them in hedges. Mix them with some sugar and a, a bottle of gin. Shake them up every week. Leave them till just before Christmas. Yep. Earlier in the podcast, I played some sounds of garden animals. They may visit our gardens, but here are the answers. The first one was a hedgehog. The second one was the pipistrelle bat. The third was the soprano pipistrelle, a higher pitch sound. The fourth one was a long-eared bat. And the fifth one was the fox calling. podcast Steve mentioned about hedgehogs and he gave us um, a website address so here's the details for you now it's called hedgehogstreet.org and it's www.hedgehogstreet that's all one word and then .org O-R-G. Now, if you find you've got a sick or injured or orphaned hedgehog in your garden, you can report it to this number and they'll give you some support. So this telephone number is 01584-890801. That's 01584-890801. Zero one. If you want more information about hedgehogs, including how to build little homes for them in your garden, it's all on the website. Thank you once again to Steve Ashton from the Tees Valley Wildlife Trust for his contribution in helping us make this podcast. We hope to restart our walks in the summer or soon after, as soon as we get permissions to do so. So farewell until then from our GFI team, from Pam, Sophie, Chris and myself and see you soon and keep safe everyone.